Would you pray with me? Holy Father, how great You truly are. We hallow Your name this morning and we pray that Your will would be done in this place. God, as we just confessed, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but we belong both in body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that today we sing hallelujah. We praise you for your grace. Lord, I pray that this truth would anchor our time in the Word today and that it would actually shine forth from it. And that you would bless the preaching of your words that we might see this one who is our hope. We ask these things for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I would ask that you would open your Bibles today for your great benefit and joy to Psalm 69. Psalm number 69. As you turn there, I would ask that you would stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David, according to the lilies, to the choir master. And the psalmist writes these words. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at a peace, when they are at peace, let it become a trap. 
Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of His servants shall inherit it. And those who love His name shall dwell in it. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. It is no secret today, friends, that suffering is normal. Pain and suffering are a part of the human experience as a whole, as, as we who live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. The result and the effects of that sin ravage the human body and human relationships. Broken relationships, broken homes, high rates of crime, wars and rumors of wars, drought, famine, tornadoes, hurricanes, sickness, and death among other things, are all part of our fallen world. Every single one of us, in some way or another, has experienced this kind of suffering already. All of us, in ways particular to us and to our situations. But not only is there suffering for all who are part of this sin-cursed world, but there's also suffering particularly for the Christian. As Jesus told us, If they persecute me, they will persecute you. We are not to be surprised by the fact that we face suffering for the sake of our faith. And this is not something that's new either. As long as the church has existed ever since the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, if you went to any year in world history, somewhere in the world at that time, Christians were being persecuted and martyred for their faith. And it's still happening now every year. Thousands of Christians are imprisoned, persecuted, and martyred for the name of Christ. And it is increasingly becoming more common, and the hostility against Christians is becoming closer and closer to where we are right now. And therefore, whether we face suffering as a part of our sinful world, or whether we face suffering specifically as Christians, which we will, Suffering is common to us as humans. And in the midst of loss and heartache and hurt and pain and in the face of death itself, we can feel utterly helpless, can we not? We don't know what to do. What are we to do? That is the question that naturally arises in our hearts. And perhaps a better question is for us, how does the gospel that I so greatly cherish address the problem of suffering? And from our text today in Psalm 69, we are given direction for times of suffering, an example to follow, and ultimately a hope that endures forever. What should we do as Christians amidst suffering? And our main idea for today answers this question, and that is to study in the school of Christ's suffering. Study in the school of Christ's suffering. In other words, We are given Christ as our perfect example, as one who suffered and did it well, did it the way that glorifies God. And he teaches us how to endure suffering, 
for the glory of God, and he himself is our ultimate and only hope in suffering. So just as Christ suffered and obtained salvation for us, so we can now suffer through his example and also have the hope of salvation in it. From our passage today, we will study in the school of Christ's suffering. We'll be like students who, who gather around the teacher in his word and learn how to do it well, how to suffer well. We will learn from three glimpses of Christ's suffering through David's lament in Psalm 69. Those three glimpses are the righteous sufferer in 1 to 13a, the trusting servant in 13b to 29, and the worshiping offspring. The righteous sufferer, the trusting servant, and the worshiping offspring. So first we have the righteous sufferer in the first section. But before we get too deep into this first point, I think it's helpful, as we have not been in Psalms for any period of time recently, to cover the context of this psalm. In order to understand any psalm rightly, we have to understand the psalms as a whole, the Psalter, the book of psalms. And contrary to the view that psalms are merely individual hymns that are like a hymn book of the people of the Old Testament, psalms is actually a unified composition pieced together by one person for a desired end. And therefore, that one composition, like any book of the Bible, has one message, and the composition helps to communicate that message. It has structure. It has themes. It has things that we are supposed to pay attention to to understand each psalm. And for the sake of time this morning, it will not be possible to have a full discussion on this, but let's, for the sake of time, just say the psalms are cohesive, and they are a whole. They're not fragmented and torn apart. And like any book, it has an introduction. And the introduction to the book of psalms is the first two psalms, Psalms 1 and 2. These psalms uniquely have no superscription that describes where they came from, and they have many points of connection between them. Between the two of them, they form what is called an inclusio, which is whenever you start with one thing and you end with the same thing. And so the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, starts with, Blessed is the man. And it also ends in Psalm 2 with, Blessed is the man. The word for meditate in Psalm 1 carries the idea of murmuring. And the same word is used in the beginning of Psalm 2, that when the peoples plot in vain, they murmur in vain against the king. There is a juxtaposition of the blessed ones and the wicked ones in both psalms. And we can go on and on and on about this, but the point is that these two psalms are meant to go together, meant to be read together, and they act as an introduction to the entire book as a whole. They tell us what the book of Psalms is about and what it's trying to accomplish. They give us the interpretive lens through which we read the Psalter. But the main idea between these two psalms and this interpretive lens is that meditation on the Lord's law or his instruction and revering and taking refuge in the messianic son and king is the way of the blessed one. So when you bring these two ideas together, he's telling us that the whole Psalter and all the Psalms in it are contributing to this theme about obtaining, obtaining true blessedness by meditating on God's word. And in doing so, it will lead you to taking refuge in the Messianic Son. That is how we are to read the Psalms, looking towards this end, that purpose. And as you may know, there's five books in the Psalms, and we're here in Psalm 69, close to the end of the first book. And the first book ends in, I mean, of the second book, I'm sorry. And the second book ends in Psalm 72. And Psalm 72 is this glorious expectation of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which in 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and there's one, one of your sons is going to sit on your throne, and he's going to reign forever, forever and ever. This Messiah, this king, he will reign over all nations, and all nations through him will be blessed. And Psalm 72 gives the culmination of this. And, and praise for the fulfillment of this. And it's this glorious psalm about the Messiah. And as the second book nears the, this culminating finish in Psalm 72, there are three psalms that give a slow build-up to it. 
So our text in Psalm 69 starts this subsection with lament. And it shares similar language to Psalm 70 and 71, which are also very lamentful. Very, uh, very uh, lamentful. Specifically, as the language of disgrace and humiliation are used in all three of these psalms, neediness, all of these things. And so Psalm 69 to 71 show the difficulties of the psalmist and his pleas for God's help, which ultimately culminates in the answer to these, these, these problems, which is Psalm 72, which is the Messiah coming, which is him reigning forever. It's beautiful. So now we have our context down. We know where we are. Let's go to Psalm 69, where we get our first glimpse of Christ's suffering, which is the righteous sufferer. The first thing that we see here is that David, the writer here, is in deep distress. He's in deep distress. David starts, Save me, O God. And just as we talked about with Psalms 1 and 2, this verse right here creates an inclusio, something that begins and ends and that kind of controls and says this is what this psalm is being tied together with and written for. And so he says, Save me, O God. And in verse 35, he says, God will save Zion. And this aspect of salvation is sprinkled throughout the text. From the first words, it is evident that the lament is not spoken for its own sake. It's not just to, to, to lament about something. It's not just to complain. This complaint, this lament, is for the purpose of appealing to God for his promised salvation for his servant and for his people. David then describes his dire situation in the following verses. He says, The waters that come up to my neck, I sink in deep mire. There's deep waters. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And this imagery of water is used many times in the Psalms to talk about really, really hard times and most often death. The psalmist is facing death, staring it in the face. He is in deep distress. And the speaker here is waiting and waiting for God, but it doesn't seem like he's coming. His eyes are growing dim with waiting. Second thing we see in the following verses is that David is innocent in his suffering. He's completely innocent. He continues in verses 4 and 5, where he describes how all of the trouble that he is experiencing is coming from other people, and that he has not done anything wrong. More in number are the hairs of my head that those who hate me without cause... What that I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have, I have done are not hidden from you. These people are attacking him with lies. They are persecuting him for no reason. And in verse 5 there we read that he, he seems to almost have a confession of sin. And so does he contradict, contradict himself? He's saying that he's, he's innocent, but at the same time he's sinned in some way, so he actually isn't innocent. You could take it like that, um, but... I don't think that David's contradicting himself. I think that he is saying, he's appealing to the Lord's knowledge of whether he is innocent or not. He's saying, I'm innocent, and God, surely you would know if I am or not. You know if I sin. You know if I have folly. You know if I have done iniquity. I didn't steal anything. I didn't do anything wrong. You see right through me, God. Instead of admitting that he was actually in the wrong, he is proclaiming his innocence. And as one commentator said, David subjects himself to the judgment of his God and relinquishes every kind of superiority or self-righteousness. David is completely innocent in the midst of his suffering. And he appeals to the justice of his God. Third, David intercedes for his people. He intercedes for his people. You see this in verse 6 and 7 or 6 through 8, where he pleads with the Lord that he might not allow the shame that he is experiencing to affect those around him. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. As David, who is the king of Israel, he represents the nation. And the nation and him have a sort of solidarity and so if other people would see that the king is being shamed and dishonored unjustly or justly, it has an effect on the people who he reigns over. And David does not want the people to bear the same shame 
that he does just because he's being unjustly hated. He intercedes for his people. Lastly, David suffers for his righteousness. He suffers for his righteousness. We see this in verse 7 and following. He gives the reason for this plea about his intercession. And he says that he wants God to spare others from experiencing shame through his name, for through his shame, for, verse 7, for it is for your sake, God, that I have, been, I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. And David's like, even my own family has left me. And I've done it all for your sake, God. David has suffered reproach or shame because of his devotion to God. And he continues to explain this in verses 9 through 12. For zeal for your house has consumed me. I was completely devoted to you, God. And what happens? The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The people who hate you because of my association with you, because of my devotion to you, they now hate me. I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. I, did, I fasted and, and humbled myself before you, God. But it became my reproach. People shamed me for it. I made sackcloth my clothing. I mourned. But I became a byword to them. They just made fun of me. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. So I'm praying, and instead of praying along with me, they're making songs about me. The psalmist has devout faithfulness to the Lord, and it leads to unwarranted public shame. He has taken on his shame for God's sake because of his devotion. In this way, David is the innocent, righteous sufferer who intercedes for the people before God. He's innocent, he's righteous, he is suffering, and he intercedes for his people. In light of how each psalm is supposed to be read with this messianic purpose that we talked about, it is not surprising that the New Testament picks up this psalm. It's actually the second most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. Psalm 22 is the first. It is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and following? This is the second most quoted psalm. And Jesus quotes Psalm 69.4, saying, those who hate me without cause, that portion. And he does this when speaking of his own suffering in John 15, when telling his disciples, you are going to experience suffering for my sake. And he quotes Psalm 69.4 and he says, because they hate me without cause. The beginning phrase of verse 9 concerning the psalmist's zeal for the Lord is quoted by Jesus when he is cleansing the temple in John 2.17. He flips tables, he cracks the whip, and he quotes, the zeal for your house consumes me. The second portion of verse 9 is quoted in Romans 15.3 when Paul says that Jews were hated, uh, well, that Jesus was hated by his own family members. And thus, Jesus' zeal for his Father's house, referring to the worship of God and his people assembled there, will result in his own family and people hating him and his subsequent death. In which he, like the psalmist, represents his people in his suffering for God's sake. David is not merely suffering presently for his people. But he, as the Davidic king who is in covenant with God, becomes the prototype of what it looks like to be a righteous, innocent sufferer for the glory of God and for the sake of his people. And so his psalm makes it into the Psalter so that whoever reads the psalms might see this righteous sufferer and know what the Messiah, the son of David, would look like and what he would do. Which is why Jesus quotes it so much. So I want us to know two things about Christ's suffering from the righteous sufferer. So we're students of Christ's suffering. There are two things that we have learned so far. The first thing is, is to know that Christ, that because Christ endured suffering, we can as well. So Jesus quotes this psalm in talking to his disciples in John 15 about, you're going you're gonna to suffer because they also hate me. And he tells us in that same passage in John 16, 1, 
I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. So when we experience suffering and persecution and ridicule and mockery, do not think it is God who hates you or who has forgotten you. Jesus said, don't be surprised. It is the ones who hate me that hate you. Do not think that because you have been righteous and you experience suffering that you should stop being righteous. No. Be like our sufferer, Jesus Christ, who suffered until the end because of his zeal for God. They will hate you without cause. But the good news for us today is that Jesus suffered this hatred at the same people's hand and endured through it so we can as well. So see his example and follow it. And the second thing from this passage so far is that we should know that Christ intercedes for you and has taken the ultimate suffering and shame on your behalf. So just as David is pictured as interceding for the people here and saying that I don't want the same shame that's falling on me to fall on them. So Christ has taken the wrath of God for sin, ultimate sin and shame have fallen on him instead of us. And because he has suffered that ultimate suffering today, we have hope. And we will not, because of our intercessor, we will not face eternal suffering in hell. And that is great news for us. In our glimpse of the righteous sufferer, we learn that amidst our suffering, we can know that Christ endured suffering, so we can as well. And we can remember that Christ intercedes for us so that even though we might face suffering right now because of our faith in Christ, even if we were to face death, we are not going to experience eternal suffering in hell. That was the righteous sufferer. And the second glimpse of Christ's suffering we get in this psalm is the trusting servant. The trusting servant. So David continues the first thing we see in this next section in 13b and following is that David trusts in God's faithful character. David trusts in God's faithful character. He says, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving, they're saving again, saving faithfulness. So once again, we're reminded that this whole psalm, this whole lament is given through the, uh, the, the lens of salvation and pleading for the salvation of God. But he invokes the steadfast love of God twice. He says it in verse 13 and in verse 16. And this term for steadfast love is best understood as God's covenant loyalty. God's covenant loyalty. His faithfulness to what he has promised to do in his covenant. The psalmist has confidence that God is indeed a God abounding in covenant loyalty and faithfulness. Exodus 34. He is confident in God and his faithfulness to his covenant with David. David remembers the covenant that he made with him. And he writes, in the abundance of the fact that you are faithful to what you have promised, he pleads for salvation. That he will indeed provide the heir that will reign forever. So he invokes his covenant fidelity, pleading God to save him, and thus, as Jim Hamilton says on this passage, in accordance with his own character, keeping his own promises, upholding his own standards. He's pleading to God's character. Second, because he trusts in the covenant loyalty of God, he cries out to him. So because he trusts in his covenant loyalty, he cries out to God. He says, there's repetition all throughout the next verses all the way up to verse 19. Look at all of the, all of the requests, the petitions. Answer me, deliver me, let me be delivered. Let not the flood answer me. Hide not your face, verse 17, from your servant. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me. Over and over again, he says, because of the fact that your steadfast love, your covenant loyalty is true of you, I'm going to petition and petition and petition you. And this follows all the way down to verses 19 and 21 where he recognizes and, and talks about in light of these petitions his 
despair, his, his position still. And it leads all the way to verse 21 where he, he says, they gave me poison for food and for my, my, my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But this poison for food and sour wine to drink is, is imagery of, of complete betrayal, radical betrayal. So we have this suffering servant so far who trusts in the faithful character of the Lord and who believes that he will uphold his promises. So he cries out in dependence. He tells him what he's suffering through even though he's completely betrayed and deserted by his enemies. He cries out to the Lord. And third thing we see in verses 22 to 29, we see that David entrusts the fate of his enemies to God. David entrusts the fate of his enemies to God. David prays a prayer of imprecation, which is a prayer that wishes for one's enemies to be cursed or to have evil fall upon them. Imprecation at its heart is communicating that those who are wicked will not obtain the blessing of God's covenant. David is praying that that would not happen for them. You see some of the words he says, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let it look like they have good things, but let it drop out from underneath of them. Put your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. That's David. Add to them punishment upon punishment. that they have no acquittal in your court. In verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Of the living. That's talking about eternal, eternal life, friends. David is saying, he's praying to God, asking them, asking, asking God, do not let my enemies be included in the book of life. And while maybe we don't understand why this trusting servant figure, who seems to be a righteous, innocent person, whatever pray for this kind of evil to fall upon someone. Aren't we supposed to pray for our enemies? Yes. Yes, we are. But a, a prayer of imprecation is actually an act that is most fundamentally an act of entrusting your enemies over to the righteous judge. Not taking things into your own hands. In other words, you could say that Davy, David truly understood that vengeance is truly God's and God's alone, and he will repay. Thus we see from this section that the trusting servant is one who continues to trust in the covenant loyalty of God through suffering, even in trusting God to do what is just with his enemies. The messianic connection that we have in this passage can be seen in verse 17 in combination with verse 26. David invokes the words, Hide your face not from your servant. Hide your face not from your servant. For I am in distress. And then in verse 26, he says, For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And this word struck and servant is calling to mind, and actually it has connections with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant song. song. We see in verse 52 of, of, of Isaiah, and in, in chapter 52 of Isaiah, <coughs> Before he gets to Isaiah 53, he says that his servant shall act wisely. And in verses 3 through 5, he says that he has struck down. He, he will be smitten. This servant will be smitten or struck down. Same verb. And so we, we have this, this connection, this connection to Christ. And as Isaiah 53, 3 through 5 says, or 9 through 12 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Same things we saw in the last section. He makes intercession. And so what does that mean for us? It means for us that like the psalmist, in the midst of our suffering, we need to trust the covenant loyalty of God. Because all the things that are promised in Christ are true for us. The things that we just read about, this making many to be accounted righteous, the suffering servant interceding, bearing the sins of many. We can trust that God will be faithful to this covenant that he has made with his son. We can trust that Christ serves as our intercessor, that he has prolonged our days forever, that he has made us to be accounted righteous. And we can petition him too, just like the psalmist does. In the midst of our suffering, because we trust in the covenant loyalty of our God, we petition him over and over again with the same petitions. Answer me, deliver me, let me be delivered. Let not the flood sweep over me. Hide not your face from your servant. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me, ransom me, all according to the abundance of your covenant loyalty. The second thing we can learn from this passage is to let vengeance be the Lord's. Let vengeance be the Lord's. Just as the trusting servant models for us in Psalm 69, let us entrust the Lord to do what is just in the midst of our persecution. Now I'm saying not to pray down curses on other people, but let us pray for our enemies in this way that we would say, God, you are the righteous judge and I pray that you would deal with this person as you please. Help me not to take this into my own hands or to be like them by hating them in my heart. Lord, vengeance is yours, not mine. I entrust their judgment to you if you deem it right in your eyes. It is by truly trusting that vengeance belongs to the Lord that we are able to genuinely turn the other cheek when facing persecution. So we have learned from the righteous sufferer, the trusting servant. And lastly, in the last section, we learned from the worshiping offspring. The worshiping offspring. The third and final glimpse of Christ's suffering that we must study in the school of Christ's suffering is this worshiping offspring. In this final section, we once again have an inclusio. You've learned something new today. Where we have the start of verse 30, mentions the name of God, praising the name of God in the end of verse 36, those who love his name shall dwell in it. And so this whole section is focused on the name of God and praising his name for what he has done. The tide turns in this portion of the passage. The whole psalm builds to this point. The groaning of the righteous sufferer and the petitions of the trusting servant are, as we said, framed within the call on God for salvation. And this salvation has been what the psalmist has called on since the beginning of the psalm. Save me, O God. Verse 13, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Verse 29, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And God finally has delivered He has answered his prayers and delivers his servant. However, notice that this salvation does not just occur for the servant. Notice the the switch in, in person. It says, When the humble see, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. Those who love his name shall dwell in it. It's more than just a servant. And this looks back to what we looked at in Psalm 69, 6-8, where you have this solidarity, solidarity, this representation of the king for his people. The beautiful thing is that because of this solidarity, because of this representative relationship between the people and their king, they experience the salvation of God through him. David petitions. David cries out. David asks 
for salvation. And in saving David, God saves those under David, whom David represents. He begins in this passage by offering up praise to God personally in verses 30 to 31. But as we saw in verse 32, it says, When the humble see it, they will be glad. Look back at verse 10. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. So he was humbled, and the humble are saved. Or he says later in verse 32, he says, You who seek God, let your heart revive. And David cries out on the behalf of the people in verse 6, Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor. And God answers, and he saves those who seek him. In the final three verses, the psalmist continues to expand the scope of Yahweh's salvation to the eternal redemption of his people, saying, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. He's saying it's not just me that should praise him, it's everyone, the whole earth, everything, all of the cosmos should praise the Lord for his salvation. It is the Lord who brings the offspring of his servants to the heavenly mountain of Zion, where they will dwell forever. It is not just the servant that is saved, but also all the offspring of God's servants. It is not just a singular offspring, friends, but all who believe in the Lord will also be saved in the same way. The psalmist, throughout all his suffering, makes known his cares to God. He petitions him. He cries out to him. He is in great, great distress. He is face-to-face with death. And all of his petitions lead him to worshiping God forever. The way that he has dealt with his suffering, he has suffered well. And because of that, he has, it has led him to ultimately hope in the guaranteed salvation that God will one day bring. David, the righteous sufferer, becomes an example to God's people of how to endure suffering, which is by hoping in the fulfillment of God's covenant and the one of whom David is a type or an example of, which is Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the Messiah King. In this passage, we were able to see how David serves as a portrait of what will be true of the coming Messiah, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, And therefore, by reading about David and his suffering, we were able to study in the school of Christ's suffering. And there in that school, we were able to catch three glimpses of Christ's suffering that are important for us to know. We saw from the righteous sufferer that will be hated for no reason, just as Christ was. But the good news is that Christ endured that suffering and has allowed us to do so as well. It is not God who hates us. It is them. We also saw that Christ intercedes for us, that we are in solidarity with him, that he represents us and that we do not have to face eternal suffering in hell because of him. From the trusting servant, we saw that the Christ is the suffering servant, and that because of the new covenant in him, and because of God as one who is abundant in covenant loyalty, we can trust in God and bring our petitions before him. We can even pray to him to entrust our enemies over to his righteous justice and to take the entire matter into his hands both suffering and persecutors. And lastly, we learn from the worshiping offspring that all of the terrible suffering that Christ went through ultimately leads to salvation, not only for the servant Christ who who rose from the dead and who defeated death and was saved from death, but also all those who believe in him, all of his servants, the servants and their offspring not just for the representative king, but for all those whom he represents, which are those who believe in him by faith. And this salvation leads ultimately to eternal, white-hot worship of the triune God forever and ever. And it is here that we see that salvation indeed comes through suffering. And we turn to what we said at the beginning, friends, all of us are going to suffer in some way. Many of you might be already suffering right now. And the problem is, is that we can suffer 
poorly. But how do we suffer well in light of what we learn from studying in the school of Christ's suffering? And there's three practical things that we can draw on top of everything we've already said. There's three practical things that we can draw. First, be brutally honest with God about your suffering. David is brutally honest about the depth of his suffering. He uses imagery about water and it's coming over me and my eyes are going weary with waiting for you, God. I'm sinking in mire. There's deep waters. I I am so close to dying. The pit of Sheol is about to close over me. And Christ was the same way, by the way. Sweating drops of blood in the garden as he prays to God, take the cup from me. But it's not my will, but yours that will be done. And on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to cry out to God and be completely and brutally honest about what we are feeling and how we are suffering. The second thing we should do is to cry out to him. Ask him, as the psalmist does, to deliver you from it. And we see the psalmist do this over and over and over again. He shows us what it means to cast all of our care on God. Why? Because of his covenant loyalty, because of his faithfulness to what he's promised, because he truly cares for you in Christ. God's heart draws near to yours in the midst of your suffering, friends. He draws near. And you can go to him and you can find rest through your soul. And you can let him bear your burdens. So be brutally honest with God. Cry out to him. And third and finally, hope in the gospel. Let your suffering lead you to the hope of salvation. Knowing that Christ has suffered for us in our place. Knowing that Christ, knowing that we should not be surprised about our suffering. Knowing that vengeance belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone. Knowing that God is eternally faithful to his covenant. We should look forward and hope in the gospel and the salvation that God brings through it. That is the pattern of this passage. That is the pattern of biblical lament. Of dealing with the things that are afflicting us. All of the other points of application that I just listed must ultimately lead to this one point that we saw in verses 30 to 36, that future salvation is sure and that we can indeed hope in it. Friends, our hope is not in our being delivered from our present suffering. Let me say it again. Our hope is not being delivered from our present suffering. We're not promised that in the gospel. We're not promised to be delivered from the suffering of this life. The point of this psalm, the point of why we're even talking about this today, is that you will have to go through it unto death. And so our hope is not in that deliverance. It is not in the healing of our bodies. It is not in God's positive answer to our petitions. It is not that God would allow us to have an easy life. What frames our prayers, what frames our petitions to God, ultimately, as it does in this psalm, is salvation. His salvation. This is the frame, the the purpose of our prayers and our laments to Him. Our hope in suffering is only Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. And I just want to say that we are not suffering well, brothers and sisters, if we do not do that. If we are not ending up at the gospel, we are not suffering well. We need to despair, yes, to be real with God, yes, to hurt and to let God know it hurts and to trust him with our lives. But if we stay there, We have not completed the process. If we let one another stay there, we have not completed the process. We must end up 
at the eternal praise and worship of God for his salvation of your soul. Because as we are going through this persecution, as we've talked about in 1 Peter, to just keep running, the motivation at the end of the line is the glory of heaven and life with the Father. This is how we are to suffer. There's a, a well, well-known academic. His name's Todd Billings. Uh, he's a uh, Reformation scholar. But about eight years ago, he was diagnosed with incurable cancer. And he's wrote, written several books on the nature of the Christian life as you approach death. In his book, Rejoicing in Lament, he says this quote, Moreover, while we should not seek to suffer for its own sake, we need to take up our cross daily and not live in service to the affluent ideals of a consumer culture that has become expert at avoiding suffering. We need to join with the laments of Christ that declare that the suffering, injustice, and unbelief of our world are not the way things are supposed to be. We need to rediscover the cries of the suffering in the Psalms and ask God to use those prayers to help us to become close to sufferers in our midst, saying, Thy kingdom come. This is how through suffering, we are able to see salvation. This is what we learn when we study in the school of Christ's suffering. Let us pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for Jesus Christ today. We're thankful for your word, and we're thankful that it is so expansive that you even give us examples of how to understand, how to process, and how to deal with the pain of this world. Father, there are many broken hearts in this room. There are many people here that are going through immense suffering. And God, I pray that each and every one of us, including them, including all of us, would push one another to hope in the salvation that comes through the Messiah, who suffered on our behalf so that we might not have to face suffering after this life that though we might face suffering here, it is all the suffering we would have to face. That even amidst suffering, that we can proclaim to live is Christ and to die is gain because of what we have in Jesus Christ, our representative, our King. God, teach us to walk in this way for your glory and your honor and your praise, which will happen forever with those who love your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.